Have you ever experienced something unexpected? This morning, as I was headed down Sorrento Road by the CVS at the corner, there was a car that was flipped over by that telephone pole, and I bet the person that was driving that vehicle did not intend to end up on the side of the road. The fire truck was there when I drove by. Everybody looked like they were okay, so we were thankful for that. But we don't intend on things to go wrong. None of us set out to have things go sideways when we're planning things out. But the reality is, is that life is unexpected. There are curveballs that life throws at us. And in scripture, we're never told that all of our circumstances are going to be great and wonderful all the time. Jesus doesn't say, follow me and everything's going to be great. You're going to get the right degree. You're going to go to the right college. You're going to marry the right person. Your kids are going to be perfect little angels. You're going to have the right job with a corner office. All the bills are going to be paid. Your retirement is going to be going so well you can go early. Jesus never says any of those things. What he does say is that in this life, you will have trouble. But the good news for us, I promise this is an encouraging sermon today. I promise. Every time I, every time I preach in here, I feel like we start off in a very gloomy state, and then we see what Christ has done. But that is the reality None of us can save ourselves. Every week I start out with a to-do list that's kind of short. And as the Monday progresses, it gets longer and longer. And my idea is that I'm going to get all of those things knocked out on Monday. I'm going to be home by 530 and I'm going to be able to spend time with my wife. But what never happens is that all of those things get done and I'm home by 530 on a Monday. I'm usually doing good if I complete all of those tasks by the end of the week. But unexpected things happen. And it's okay that unexpected things happen because someone else is in control and we can find rest in that. Something tragic can happen in our lives. There could be a car accident, a diagnosis, but whatever circumstances that we experience, we as people, as humans have a tendency to turn and look for help. The problem is I'm confessing something to you today because I do this pretty regularly. We look to ourselves for help. We turn to ourselves for help. We think, if I just work harder, if I just get enough things done today, if I just get the right people to help, we take all of that responsibility on ourselves and we try to answer all of life's questions out of our own strength. Scripture doesn't teach that that's the way we need to operate in our lives. There is someone much greater than me. There is someone much greater than you who has all of life's answers and who has paid the price for us to have eternal life and it has been paid on the cross of Calvary. We have Jesus in our corner and that is all of the encouragement that we need. I vividly remember sitting at the kitchen table. My parents are here this morning. Uh, it kind of makes me nervous when, when they come to hear me preach because it's like I kind of go back to, you know, being a little kid. Y'all level with me for a second. When your parents are in the room, you've been away. But I knew that they were coming, and I was kind of thinking of an illustration for uh, the sermon this morning, and my mind immediately went to uh, sitting at our home in Pascagoula at the kitchen table, and I was hooked up to a breathing machine. It was something that was a box about 
yay big. It would sit on the kitchen table. You would turn it on. It would make a really awful noise. But inside of this machine was some medicine, and I would have a mask over my face. It would be attached to me, and this would help me breathe. I would breathe deeply for about 10 minutes or so because I had asthma. This medicine was treating that. And you really don't understand how essential breath is to your life until you're struggling to have it. Now, I have an interesting perspective on this because I know what it's like to struggle to get a breath. Um, I'm trying to, I'm trying to run on a regular basis. But one of the problems that I have from that is that I have some blockage in uh, some, some of the tubes in my lungs and I run out of breath very quickly. Um, but over time through treatments that has gotten a little bit easier and better, but something like breath is so essential your body, everything in your body is connected to the oxygen that comes into your lungs. It's dispersed throughout your entire body, and it is essential to life. Every breath that we have is a gift from God. Every breath that we have, and we take those things so for granted, and we're looking to whatever the next thing is for fulfillment in life, and we pass the one who can bring fulfillment in Jesus Christ. So today, I want you to know that faith is as essential to your walk with Jesus as breathing is to your body. If we don't have faith, we're missing out on everything. Ephesians chapter 2 tells us that by, by grace, we are saved through faith. We're saved through faith. We're not saved by doing good things. We're not saved by being a good person, there's not enough good things that we can do to repay the sin debt that we have, but Jesus has already paid that in full. So some of us are spending our time trying to balance the scales and do enough good things so that we can get into heaven, and I want you to know that you're wasting your time. You're wasting your time trying to make the good outweigh the bad because it has been paid in full already. To set the stage for this interaction that we're about to see between Jesus and several people, Jesus has just finished the Sermon on the Mount. In Luke chapter 6, if we were to go there, we would see the Sermon on the Mount. We just read through that in our Foundations Discipleship Groups. And if you were like me, when you got to that, you're underlining like the whole thing because we're looking for highlights, right? But it's the Sermon on the Mount, right? The best sermon ever preached. Jesus standing in front of all of the people. There are so many highlights in that, right? So following that, he's coming into Capernaum a city that is on the north edge of the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus is well known here because this is kind of a hub of his ministry. He spends a lot of time here. This is a city that is on a major trade route. Many people are coming and going through Capernaum. And Jesus is very well known in this area. So at first glance, we can totally miss the point about what is happening in this passage. Luke chapter 7, verses 1 through 10. After he had finished all his sayings and hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent the elders of the Jews to him, asking him to come and heal his servant. 
And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I do not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. And turning to the crowd that followed him, he said, I tell you, not even in Israel, Have I found such faith? And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. Would you pray with me? God, I pray that for the remainder of our time, you'd open our hearts, our minds to the message that you have for us in this moment, this morning. God, I pray that throughout this message today, we would see that we have to live counter-culturally because you have called us to. God, we have to fight our selfish ambitions and desires thinking that we're in control because you're in control. God, I pray that we would see that there is no other way than through Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. In a broken world, we have to live by faith. But not faith in anything in the right place. When you came in and you sat on the chair, you probably didn't think twice about sitting in the chair because you thought it was going to hold you. You had faith that the chair was not going to fall. On Tuesdays when the Blue Angels are practicing, the cats at my house do not have faith that an airplane is not going to come flying into our house. They lose their minds, right? Now, we know that that's kind of silly, but a lot of us are living paralyzed in fear because of some statistics that we see. Whether that is things that are happening on the internet or how many people die in car accidents a year or from heart disease or whatever the case may be, we cannot live lives paralyzed in fear. We have to have faith. Scripture teaches us that God is in control, that he created the heavens and the earth. He created you. He knows your innermost thoughts and he knows how many hairs are on your head. We can have faith that God knows what's going on that he's got this. So our culture is full of messages of self-empowerment. The self-help literature section in your bookstore is full of all kinds of things. I read, I read a lot of those things, and I think some of those are good. I am not making a case that you don't need to be self-aware and you need to be kind to other people. What I am saying is that the answer to all of life's problems is not in us. It's in the Savior of the world. It's in Jesus, okay? So... Why do we act like we're in control? Why do we act like we have all of the answers? I know for, for me, a lot of times when life starts to go okay, you know, the bills are paid for a little bit, things are going well, um, you know, you may even have a vacation that's coming up, and life is good, you kind of get back into the driver's seat, and you act like everything's going well until that next curveball comes in, Right? until that next curveball comes in. And then we come to the realization that we're not in control and we need Jesus to come in and save the day. 
Luke begins this narrative with a transition. He comes from the Sermon on the Mount and says, after he had finished all these things, after he had finished all his sayings, he transitions into this encounter with Jewish elders and with friends of the Roman centurion. So the people that are introduced as the Jewish elders are not necessarily leaders in the synagogue, but they are leaders in the town. They're leaders in Capernaum. People listen to the things that they have to say, and they are people of good reputation, right? The next person that's introduced to us is the centurion's servant, who is described as someone that is highly valuable. Now, you may be thinking that this servant is someone with good skill that is able to get a lot done for his master, whatever the case may be with that. But the Greek word that describes him is pious, is the same word that is used when God is describing Jesus. So we know that in in Matthew's account, he's described as a boy. So we know that this centurion doesn't just have a light surface level relationship. This isn't just somebody that works for him. This is someone that he deeply cares about, like family, okay? Someone deeply cared about. And the centurion himself, well, he was an officer in the Roman army. He was over 100 soldiers. When 60 of these guys would come together, they would create a legion of 6,000 troops, a force to be reckoned with. And these centurions were usually pretty well off, right? This isn't really like a middle management kind of thing. This is someone who has authority, who's over a hundred men, and they are people of economic means, but also they had some social implications to their jobs, right? When the Jewish elders are describing him to Jesus, they say he built our synagogue. He himself put some skin in the game for building the synagogue, and they go and they make a case to Jesus. So as Jesus is in Capernaum, the Jewish elders come to him. And verses 4 and 5 tell us that they plead earnestly on behalf of the centurion. They plead earnestly with Jesus, and they say, you need to do this because he is worthy. He is worthy. He loves our nation. He builds a synagogue for us. I want you to know today that if you love your country, that's not enough to make you worthy. If you love your, your church, that's not enough to make you worthy. The only thing that can make us worthy is the blood of Jesus Christ. It's nothing that we do. It's nothing that we can accomplish on our own. It's something that is only done through Jesus. So I want you to know this. The gospel is not based on anything that we have done. It solely rests on what Jesus has done on our behalf. The good news of Jesus is not based on good works that we do, though scripture says we were, when we're in Christ, there are good works that he has for us to do, but it is, it rests solely on what Jesus has done on our behalf on Calvary. The Jewish elders fell into a trap that religious people fall into all the time. They got this close. They got really close. Now, you're probably thinking, well, hang on, hang on. You're probably pushing back a little bit. These guys did a good thing. They saw this centurion. He had a servant that was sick. They knew that Jesus was the answer. And they went to Jesus. And they go and they make a case. And they say, Jesus, this guy's worthy. You need to come heal his servant. They did all of the right things. Again, they were this close. They go and they make a case to Jesus based on the merit of the centurion. 
The case that they make to Jesus is not that, Jesus, you're in control, you are powerful, you can heal this disease. They go and they say, he's worth it. He's done a lot of good things. He's worthy. I want you to know that none of us in here today are worthy of salvation. None of us are. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. In Mark 10, Jesus says that no one is good but God alone. But in Ephesians 2, which we read earlier, for by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Did you catch that? This is not your doing. It is not based on works. It is not a result of works. Yet the Jewish leaders make this case for the centurion. He's worth it. He's done good things. Jesus, you need to go save this man because of the things that he's done. They missed it. So Jesus decides to come with him. He says, okay. In verse 6, he decides to go with them. And I want you to know that there's it's possible for us to do the right thing the wrong way. These guys go and they call on Jesus and they do the right thing. They go to Jesus. Here's where we get in trouble. If this can just be a little bit raw for a second, it gets in, we get in trouble whenever we put ourselves in the place of lordship in our lives. We pray for things when we expect a desired result to come from those things. And when our prayers are not answered, we have to scramble and explain why God didn't answer these prayers. Why is that? Because we are telling God what to do rather than offering up our issues, our circumstances to him. And frankly, that's not in scripture. Yes, we're supposed to intercede for one another. Yes, we're supposed to bring our needs before the Father. No, we're not supposed to tell God what to do. How arrogant does that sound? God, you're going to do this because I need it. Well, God doesn't answer to us. We answer to him. So when we pray, we have the attitude of Jesus And even Jesus, the Son of God, part of the Trinity, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he made himself nothing and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus' attitude is countercultural. Too often we use the name of Jesus to elevate ourselves, and that has got to stop. Too often we use the name of Jesus. We throw it in there and wrap it up in a little Jesus bow and act like everything's going to be okay. But that's not in Scripture. What is in Scripture is that Jesus is the life giver. What is in Scripture is that he has paid the debt for our sins. I would rather have life in Jesus than health or wealth any day of the week. Are you with me? Jesus has done something that is so much greater than the parameters that we put on our own lives, than the own path that we put ourselves on. Jesus calls us to something greater, and that's something that is eternal. Everything that we experience, all of the pain that we experience here is temporary because we're coming to a place of glory where sickness is no more. We're trained and conditioned to think that if we work hard enough, we do all the right things. We pray, we come to church, we do everything. A desired result will happen, and that is just not in Scripture. It's not in the Bible. 
Yes, God is faithful. Yes, God is influenced by the things that we offer up to him. We can see many times throughout the Old Testament that God gets so aggravated with the people that he's ready to start over. And then Moses says, no, don't do it. Don't do it. These are your people called by your name to elevate you. Don't do this. And God relents. So yes, there's power in our prayers. We have to be very careful when we're making demands to a holy God, which is what these Jewish elders are doing. Faith apart from Jesus is pointless. Faith in yourself is pointless. Yes, you can believe in yourself. When you believe in yourself, you have self-confidence. You can achieve good things. We know that from psychology. That's a good thing. But faith apart from Jesus leads nowhere. I wholeheartedly believe that there's nothing in this life that can fulfill us apart from Jesus, apart from salvation through him. Now, I'm certainly not advocating that we shouldn't work hard and we shouldn't work to achieve our goals. Colossians 3.23, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord, not for men. I believe Christians should be the hardest working people in the workplace because even our work ethic can point back to our Savior. Jesus calls us to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And we should work and labor to see that happen, to see lost people become saved, to see people go from death to life and spend eternity in the presence of God. We should be laboring for that and working for that. St. Augustine said, pray as though everything depended on God. Work as if everything depended on you. I kind of struggle with this. I've heard this for many years uh, in, from a Christian studies program to seminary. People always say this, like, you need to work hard. And that's a, a hard thing for us to comprehend, to pray as if everything depended on God, work as if it depended on us. But when you get it, you get it. This is one of those things that's very difficult for us to explain. Salvation doesn't come through our works. It comes through the, the finished work of Jesus Christ. So where's the hope? It starts in verse 6. And Jesus went with them when he was not far from the house. The centurion sent friends saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. This is a stark difference between what the Jewish elders said. They came to Jesus and they were creating a case. Jesus, you've got to come. This guy's great. He built our synagogue. He is a good man. You need to come because he's good. The centurion says, God, don't even trouble yourself. I'm not worthy. I am not even worthy to have you in my house. The centurion paints a very different picture. And the centurion has something that is countercultural. Humility is countercultural. We're taught in leadership, in uh, any of these books that we read, that we need to have pride in the things that we do. We need to elevate ourselves. But in the upside down kingdom of God, Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom of God. Something that is totally different than the main message that we hear from society if you want to talk about something else that's countercultural, in heaven, we sang a song about this just a minute ago. The streets are going to be paved with gold. They paved the streets with things that we're killing each other for. 
Heaven is so different than the reality and that we create for ourselves, the ideology of things that we think are important. Heaven is so different. And Jesus is saying, I want you to come with me, live counterculturally by faith and humility to reach the world. One of the beauties of the gospel is that it's not up to us. It's not up to us. We should not be seeking to elevate ourselves and be better than everyone else. This is the exact opposite of what the culture says. Pride is culturally acceptable and humility is publicly shunned. If you don't believe me, you can listen to the next time a presidential debate rolls around. Watch how they interact with each other. The people that wins are always the people who are more confident, who pound the other person into the ground, and the country celebrates, right? When, when, if that's your candidate, people are happy about that. But what Jesus is saying is that we need to live humbly. I believe that it's possible for us to live humbly and impact everyone around us. Jesus did. If we're following in the example of Jesus, Jesus, the only time that we see uh, really arise out of Jesus is whenever he comes into the temple and he flips all the tables over. But usually when Jesus is talking to the Pharisees, to the religious leaders, to the people that he's going to correct, he deals with them very softly. And even though he says the son of man is greater He doesn't say it in a way that provokes a response. Usually the religious leaders hang their heads and go home because they don't have anything to stand on. Humility is countercultural. And living counterculturally for Christ is something that we have to fight for in our own lives because we get in the way. We get in the way because we think we are better, we are greater. That's that flesh coming out of us. And if we live like that, we're going to miss it. If we think we're greater, we're going to be just like those Jewish leaders. Yeah, we may know that Jesus is the answer, but we're going to live a life depleted of the power of the Holy Spirit unless we know that we have to rely on him. Verse 7, Centurion continues, Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. The centurion knew. The centurion knew who Jesus was. He had just heard about him. But the centurion who had just heard about Jesus had more faith than the disciples did who were following Jesus, who saw him cast out demons, who saw him heal the lame, heal the sick. And they missed it. What what did they do when they were in a boat in the in the boat? They freaked out and lost their minds and then Jesus came up and said, "Peace be still." They were following the Savior so closely that they were blinded by their own thoughts. Even when Jesus predicts his death, it says that the Spirit kept it from them. We have to be very careful to think that we have all of this stuff figured out. We have to allow the Spirit to teach us, to speak to us. But the Roman centurion knew that Jesus was able to do what he could not And I'm making the case to you today that Jesus is able to do for you what you can't do for yourself. Because we can't forgive ourselves of our own sins. We can't do that. We can repent and we can ask God to forgive us of our sins, but that's something that we can't do on our own. We have to understand that we are under authority. You've been bought with a price, as the scriptures say. Verse 8. 
The centurion gives this beautiful explanation of his faith. For I too am a man set under authority. With the soldiers under me, I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. He understands what authority he has in this military rank. Now, I know we've got a lot of military families in here, and I hope that uh, you would, I hope this is the way that it works at least, when, when a higher ranking officer tells somebody something to do, they do it, Right? It's not a question of if you're on the battlefield and you, your commanding officer tells you to do something, it's not like you don't sit around and say, oh, well, you really think that's the best thing to do? Well, you know, I just, I don't really feel like doing that. No, they go, they go do what they're commanded to do. This centurion understands that he has that authority over his troops and Jesus has the authority from the Father, Jesus' authority is infinitely more than this centurion, and he understands that Jesus has power over this illness that has fallen on his servant. He recognized that Jesus had authority from God the same way that he had authority from Caesar, and he understood that God's authority was so much higher than Caesar's. He had only heard about Jesus. He had only heard about these miracles, but he believed and he had faith. He had faith, something that is so crucial to our walk with Jesus. So let me ask you this. When was the last time that you had peace in the storm? When was the last time that something unexpected came up and you knew that God was in control? You just had this peace. I think for us, a lot of times when the big things happen, we're kind of ready to surrender those things to Jesus. This diagnosis comes up, a car accident happens, the unknown is out there. We're quick to say, God, I need you. But in the small things, we say, I've got this. I can work harder. I can put my nose down. I can get some things done. But are you relying on Jesus like he has all authority? When Jesus says in Matthew 28, All authority on heaven and earth has been given to me, and then he gives us the command to go and make disciples. Are we living our lives like Jesus has all authority on heaven and earth? Or are we just acting like Jesus has authority over our eternal salvation? A lot of us church people think that, yes, Jesus is the answer for my soul, but he's not the answer for my bank account. He's not the answer for my retirement. He's not the answer for the house that I live in. Every piece of our lives are impacted by our relationship with Jesus. These aren't little things that we say, okay, well, I'm just going to be a follower of Jesus on Sunday morning because it's going to look good and my mom's going to be happy about it. No, we're a follower of Jesus when we go home, when we go out to eat, when we're around our friends, when bad things happen in our lives, when somebody cuts you off on the street, you're still a follower of Jesus. There's not just like a little switch that you have that you can turn on whether or not you are a follower of Jesus. And let me tell you, when people, when we get aggravated with people, it always says more about us than it does them. Always. When you allow someone to get so under your skin, it says more about you than it does them. Because if we really have our eyes fixed on things eternal, if we really understand the point, and and some of you are saying, okay, well, whatever, you're not dealing with the aggravating people that I deal with. Maybe, maybe. But I know this, 
when I'm right spiritually, when I'm spending time in scripture, those things just don't get deep down anymore. They just don't. Because the Spirit of God gives you opportunities to minister to people and to do all things through Christ who strengthened you. To be a witness for him when we are so frustrated and aggravated, we can do all things through Christ. Tim Keller said, faith is not primarily a function of how you feel. Faith is living out and believing what truth is despite how you feel. Some of you have weathered some really hard storms in your life. Some of you have lost family members or even children. Some of you may be in the midst of a storm right now. Whether that's a diagnosis that you have or a a bad trajectory into the future, but I want you to know God is with you. We believe that God is omnipresent. He is right beside you. And faith is living it out despite how we feel. And that is something that is so real. Charles Spurgeon said this, no faith is so precious as that which lives and triumphs through adversity. Tested faith brings experience. You would never have believed your own weakness had you not needed to pass through trials. And you would have never known God's strength has his strength not been needed to carry you through. God is with you in the valleys. God is with you in the mountains. When things are good, when things are bad, if we claim to be followers of Jesus, it's going to be true no matter what our circumstances are. So the question is this, do you live your life like Jesus has all authority? When you interact with people at work, when you're at home dealing with your kids, when you are in church, when you're interacting with people around you, do you act like Jesus has all authority? Because our actions show the condition of our heart. Scripture is very clear about that. In verse 9, Jesus marvels at the faith of the centurion. I think this is so cool because... Many times, y'all know, y'all know Peter, the disciple, right? He does some kind of some things sometimes that has you scratching your head. But the reality is we probably all do some of the same things. He gets really fired up sometimes. And many times Jesus would say to the disciples, you of little faith. Even as far into when Jesus is praying in the garden and the, and the disciples fall asleep, he says, you of little faith. But this centurion who had only heard about Jesus knew that Jesus could just say the word and Jesus marvels at his faith. I hope that you have faith like the centurion. I hope that you live your life knowing that Jesus is in control, that he has all authority from heaven and earth. Even among professing disciples of Jesus, this man had more faith. A Roman centurion, someone who was not even in the Jewish faith, knew that this Jesus was in control. He had more faith than the people who were supposed to have. Please don't fall into that trap today. Do you have faith in yourself or do you have faith in Jesus? Do you believe that Jesus has the authority that he claims and does your life show it? 
If we say, I believe in Jesus, but it doesn't affect the way we live, the answer is not that we need to add hard work to our faith, but that we haven't understood or believed Jesus at all. Tim Keller said that in The Prodigal God, and I really want that to sink in. If we say, I believe in Jesus, but it doesn't affect the way that we live, the answer is not that we need to add hard work to our faith, but that we haven't believed in Jesus at all. I hope that when you come into church, that you leave changed, that it impacts the way that you live. Because if that doesn't, we're wasting our time. I hope that you don't just show up on Sunday so that you are encouraged, you sing a couple songs, you get in your car and you go home and nothing changes. We meet together, we gather together to encourage each other, to lift each other up, to hear the word of God. And when the word of God is preached, we are changed. The Holy Spirit speaks to us. We are convicted. I hope that you are confessing your sins to the Father. I hope that you're repenting and you're seeking to follow him each day. J.R. Edwards said, faith is found in unexpected quarters. In Gentile centurions and alien Samaritans and desolate widows. But wherever it is found, it results in the joy of incarnation of Christ. I'm going to ask the musicians to come back to the stage. And in closing, I just want to ask you again. Where is your faith? Is it in yourself? Is it in a process, an organization, a government? Or is it in the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords? In the one who created the heavens and the earth? Is it in the one who paid the price for your sins? Don't be like the rich young ruler who came to Jesus and said, how can I be saved? And Jesus says, well, if you keep the commandments. And he says, well, I've done all those things since I was a young boy. And then Jesus says, go and sell your possessions to the, to the poor. And he left that day with his head held low because he missed it. You see, the Christian life is not about a list of do's and don'ts. It's not. It's about following Jesus each and every day, knowing that he is the son of God, that he is in control, that he has all authority from heaven and earth. No amount of money or good deeds or knowledge can bring you salvation. Salvation only comes through the blood of Jesus Christ. And I hope that you'll know that today. In just a second, I'm going to pray. We're going to close. But at the end of our service, at the back doors, we have encouragers and they're there to pray with you. If you have questions about salvation, if you want to know what it means to follow this Jesus that we've been talking about, they're here for you. The reason we send people to the back instead of to the front is so that you can have as much time as you need to pray or to be counseled for anything that you need. I hope that you've heard the gospel message today that Jesus is better, that it's not on us. Salvation comes from admitting that we're a sinner, believing on the Lord Jesus, committing our lives to him, confessing him as Lord. Would you pray with me? God, I thank you that I'm not in charge of my own salvation or for the salvation of anyone else for that matter because I would come up short every single time. 
God, I thank you for the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, the perfect payment for our sins. And God, I pray for every man, woman, boy, or girl in this room who does not know you as their Savior, that today would be the day of their salvation. God, I pray for the ones struggling to see you at work in their life where the circumstances are bleak and there's not a good outlook. God, I pray that they would know that you are right there beside them. God, that you are with us in the valleys. And God, I pray that we would live counterculturally by faith in Jesus, knowing that all authority on heaven and earth is in him and we can trust him. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hey, just a couple things to let you.